Okay, we're moving from Germany to uh, continuing in Europe, but we're moving from Germany to Switzerland. And I mentioned earlier that Ulrich Zwingli was uh, Swiss, and John Calvin was born in France, although he was exiled from France, and he never returned to France after he had been exiled. But he always had a heart for the Reformed Church uh, in France. But this article by Robert Godfrey of Westminster Seminary in California is very helpful. And I'll be working through some of the points I've highlighted for you, some of the, the main takeaways as I'll be working through this. But we mentioned this earlier that in the Middle Ages, congregational singing essentially disappeared. Uh, it had been usurped by the, the Roman Catholic clergy and the, the, the laity, the, the people sitting in the pews, the, the people's, which, which mic am I on here? The people sitting in the pews, this is really disturbing. Okay, that's better. But the people sitting in the pews were not engaged in, in singing. The, the singing had been essentially taken over by the, uh, the, the clergy and professionals, so to speak. But the Reformation recovered congregational singing. And that's, that's a major event. We, we don't even think in those terms. Uh, and we, we take congregational singing for granted. Uh, but there were centuries where that was not the case. And, uh, and so in the middle of page one, I simply would draw your attention to the fact that there are three major figures in the European Reformation. And at this point, we're over in Europe. Eventually, we'll end up over in England. But uh, Luther, German, Zwingli, Swiss, Calvin, French, but moved to Switzerland. All of them uh, were pivotal figures, not only in the Reformation, but each of them had significant musical capabilities, and they would write music, they would uh, use their skills in a number of ways to write poems and, and hymns, uh, tunes to accompany the hymns, uh, but they had different approaches to these things, and it's, it's important to understand a continuum. So on one end, you had Luther, uh, very musical. Last week we sang, we studied, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, Luther, uh, very, very musical and was uh, prone to use uh, instrumentation, uh, fond of using the organ, etc. For him, music was, uh, the, the, the accompaniment was um, very much a part of what was going on. Uh, it was very, uh, he actually saw music as a way of sort of driving away the enemy. And, and so we, we saw that actually last week in a mighty fortress uh, is our God. But the, the important thing is he would see singing hymns as a way of teaching doctrine. So it was not entertainment. It was not emotional engagement. He was teaching doctrine. And, and keep in mind, please, that as they were teaching doctrine, this was doctrine that had been lost. It had been completely obscured for centuries in the Middle Ages by the Roman Church. The, the, the laity did not have the Bible in their language. They did not worship in their language. So the question is, how could they worship? They, they, were, they were listening to music that was done in a language, Latin, that was not their own language. And, and so Luther was teaching doctrine 
through their hymns. Uh, Zwingli uh, had a very different approach. He was musically trained. He was uh, arguably one of the better musicians of these three figures of Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. But he was greatly concerned that the music would be uh, too powerful emotionally. I want you to think about this because we, what was he concerned about? He was concerned about biblical fidelity. He, w- he was very much concerned about being faithful to the scriptures and informing the hearts and the minds of the, of the congregation. He was not focused, matter of fact, he was averse to letting the emotional feature drive the wagon. Now, think about what goes on today. Think about what drives much of contemporary Christian music and what the, the instrumentation, the re- repetition of certain phrases, the repetition of lines over and over, um, very different. Uh, Zwingli was, was not fond of, of that, and nor should he have been fond of that, but he had no musical instruments, uh, no choirs, no congregational singing, and you could be saying, you know, what a fuddy-duddy. Um, but, but that was not the case. They were responding to and reacting to the abuses of the Roman church for centuries. And, and so you, you constantly remind yourself of the historical context. They were recovering biblical truth. And his one and only concern was that when they would be engaged in worship, that it would be faithful to the text, that they didn't want something to obscure or detract from an accurate understanding of the scriptures. So they were responding in different ways. Calvin um, was somewhat in the middle, although he wasn't attempting to strike middle ground. He, he was not at all interested in being a compromised position. As a matter of fact, Calvin and Luther never personally interacted. Um, I'm told that Luther wrote a letter to Melanchthon that was Luther's good friend, but they, they never actually interacted. So they, these were pivotal figures, but they literally were not interested in sort of finding compromised position. They were, they were contemporaries of each other. But Calvin's view, uh, and I'm on page two of the notes, was he saw congregational singing as a very important part of congregational worship. But he focused on the content of the hymns, and, and he said, where, have, where do we have an appropriate content for what we sing? And he went to the Psalms, and, and we'll be studying the use of, of the Psalter. And, and many of us have not grown up in denominations of psalm singers, and that seems a bit strange to us. It shouldn't be strange. It, it literally was a focal point of the Christian church for centuries, and it has been largely lost in the, in the, in the most recent 100 years, except for certain segments of Reformed churches. But Calvin looked at the content, and he said, let's go to the, the psalms, and his view was, uh, you can look at the, at the middle of this, he, he said Calvin believed that Paul wanted the Apostle Paul wanted the songs of Christians to be spiritual and not made up of the frivolities and worthless trifles. They were all responding to the abuses of the Roman church where there would be these clerics and the, the monks that would be singing in a different language and it would be professional, so to speak, and, and the, the, the people sitting in the pews had no idea what was going on. They, they, they were not worshiping because they, their, their minds and their hearts were not engaged. 
So for, for Calvin, the, the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, were the appropriate source for hymnody in the church. And the reason he said that is there's no uh, emotion of which anyone can be conscious that, that is not represented in the Psalter. And that's true if you've been through the Psalms, and I, I know we all have. Uh, they literally reflect our hearts in all different, different ways. But Calvin and others would, would use the, the best talents that they had. I had a question about the musicality of what they did. Uh, Calvin was very much occupied with excellence, not only in the content of what the congregation would be singing, but the musicality of what they were singing. And so he engaged, uh, this name may or may not be familiar with you, but um, Louis Bourgeois. Um, Louis Bourgeois uh, was one of the most talented uh, musicians uh, in all of church history. Uh, and he's known for uh, a piece of music called the Old 100th. Um, maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. If you haven't heard the Old 100th, search for that and listen to it. It's, it's majestic. Uh, but Calvin wanted to keep things simple. Uh, he was not fond of uh, polyphony musical uh, several parts. Today we have soprano, alto, tenor, bass, four parts. That was, he said, that's fine if you want to do that at home, uh, at work, um, and you're with your family. But when we come to the church, he wanted hymns to be sung, the psalms to be sung in unison. And the reason for that was he was moving away from the, the idea that the musical part, the instrumentation part, was driving the wagon. He, he did not want that to drive the wagon. He wanted the content to be first and foremost. He didn't want people's minds to be occupied with, am I singing soprano or alto, or am I fitting in with the tenor part or the bass part? That was, that was not important, and it shouldn't be important. That, that, that we, we, we take that for granted today, that, that, that there's musical parts. But for him, it was all about the content. He wanted the people's hearts and their minds to be 100% engaged in what they were singing. Uh, and so he moved away from instrumentation to some extent, not to the extent of Zwingli, but, his, but Calvin's primary contribution in music was the use of the Psalter. And we'll, we'll talk about how that actually developed. But he was responsible for uh, the Genevan Psalter and to some extent the Strasbourg Psalter and uh, that one of the hymns that we'll look at today actually is recorded for us in the Strasbourg Psalter. But he said, uh, bottom of page 12, that he wanted the tunes to be memorable and singable. Now, I, as I was reading this last week on this very topic, one of the points that was made by a person that was interviewed on this, this discussion about Calvin and the Psalter, think about this for a second. Today we've got hymnals. Now today we've got PowerPoints. Today we're familiar with, with all sorts of music. Um, the congregations had not sung for centuries. They didn't know music. They, they, they had heard music, but they, 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 they didn't have any hymnals. And, and suddenly they were introduced to a Psalter that, that had these remarkable tunes that were associated with them. And how were they going to sing them? They, 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 they didn't know the music. And, and that's why Calvin wanted to keep things simple for them. He wanted them. And, and one of the points that was made in, in the reading that I did was that Calvin would teach the musical tunes to the children. They were that simple. And then the children would teach them to their parents. 
And, and that's how they would become familiar with the actual tunes that they would be singing. They were that simple. And, and again, it was a way of drawing the hearts and the minds of the congregation to the lyrics uh, themselves. Uh, top of page three, uh, essentially, um, retraces what I just said, but it, it makes the additional point that Calvin was not at all fond of choirs. Now, why? Think about this. When we gather as a congregation, we are one body, right? And, and so when you have a choir, uh, it's, it's as if the choir is, is one group and the congregation is another group. He was emphasizing the unity of the body. He was emphasizing the way in which all of the congregation was one body. So they, they were not segmented into the more highly skilled choir and the rest of the congregation. That's why he, he insisted that the entire congregation sing these psalms together. There's a reason for all that he did. It wasn't arbitrary. It was all being driven by the importance of fidelity to the scriptures and putting the focus exactly where the focus needed to be. And they were responding to centuries and centuries of abuse in the Roman church and the fact that the, the congregations had no idea how to sing and they were being introduced to music for the first time. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of these two figures, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli, 1484 to 1531. There is a, the, 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 an account that he had been ordained as a pastor. He's in Zurich. Um, Calvin was in Geneva primarily, but, um, but uh, Zwingli was in Zurich. And he was ministering in Zurich, but he found himself uh, in a town called Bad Pfaffers. I'm sure I have mispronounced that. I, I don't know German. Today, we have COVID-19, and we're, we're dealing with COVID-19 in various ways. In the 1500s, and this was uh, 1519, he was visiting another town, and the word came to him that the bubonic plague had found its way to Zurich. Uh, and now I'm on the top of page four. Um, very deadly. Uh, what, was, what would happen is it, it, there was no way to quarantine people. There, was no, there were no vaccinations. There were, they didn't know what to do in terms of, of prophylactic or preventative measures. Uh, medicine was at a somewhat primitive stage then. Um, but the, these devastating episodes of plagues would come across Europe. And those who had the means financially to leave the area would leave. They would go somewhere else. But that was a small part of the population. Those who remained, there was the, the bulk of the population, were subjected to the plague. And the Zwingli and others like him would go right into the midst of, their, of the city and they would minister to those who were sick and dying. And they didn't know what to do about masks. They didn't know what to do about social distancing. They, they, that was not even in their mindset of social distancing. They would, they would go and pray and minister and read the word and counsel those who were suffering from the plague. When he went, there, there were about 2,500 that had already died in, in Zurich. And by the time um, it was over, about a fourth of the entire population of Zurich had died from this plague. 
and Zwingli himself and his brother Andreas came under the impact of the bubonic plague. It was a very painful um, thing. It affected the, the lymphatic system and there would be these black boils that would take over your body and, and very few people dealt with it well and most would die from it. It, it was immensely contagious and very, very deadly. But he wrote a poem in the midst of the plague and he wrote it in phases. Now, remember, Zwingli was not, although he was a musician, he would write poetry. And so we don't have the music for this because he didn't write music for this. But there is a poem that he wrote, and it's recorded for you. Uh, there is a somewhat of a modern paraphrase in, on page 5. And it's, it was called his Plague Hymn uh, in 1519, and it changed his life. It, it, it caused his preaching to become very, very focused. Uh, his ministry became even more intense than it had ever been before. And if you think about coming under the effects of the plague and dealing daily with those who were dying with sickness in, in a very difficult way, uh, life in eternity and dealing with people's souls became absolutely the pivotal focus in Ulrich Zwingli's life. As I read this, I want you to follow along on page 5, and it continues on page 6. There's a progression, and I, I want you to notice the first four stanzas were likely written when he first came under the effects of the plague. But notice in stanzas 3 and 4 how he responds to this. Ulrich Zwingli was looking at the providence of God. Help me, O Lord, my strength and rock. Low at the door, I hear death's knock. Uplift thine arm, once pierced for me, that conquered death and set me free. He's asking God to heal him. He's asking God to save his life. But notice the response to this. Yet, if thy voice in life's midday, he was, he was a young, relatively young person at this time, recalls my soul, then I obey. In faith and hope, earth I resign, secure of heaven, for I am thine. That was likely the first phase of the three phases of this, this hymn that he wrote. The second phase, notice the intensity picks up. He's, he's facing death. My pains increase, haste to console, for fear and woe seize body and soul. Death is at hand. My senses fail. My tongue is dumb. Now Christ prevail. Then the response to this. How does he respond? Look at the top of page 6. And consider, put yourself in his shoes, so to speak, and consider the travails physically that he was suffering. Lo, Satan strains to snatch his prey. I feel his grasp. Must I give way? He harms me not. I fear no loss, for here I lie beneath thy cross. He didn't know what was going to happen at this point. That, that was the condition of his heart, the condition of his soul. After his recovery, he wrote the last four stanzas. My God, my Lord, healed by thy hand, upon the earth once more I stand. 
Let sin no more rule over me. My mouth shall sing alone to thee. And then these last two, again, the response. Though now delayed, my hour will come. Involved, perchance, in deeper gloom. He, he, he knew that he was finite. He knew that his days were numbered. All of our days are numbered. And he knew that his ultimate outcome could be worse than what he had suffered already. But let it come. With joy I'll rise and bear my yoke straight to the skies. So this is a chronicle. This is his diary, so to speak, written in the midst of suffering from the bubonic plague. His brother died from this. His brother Andreas died. And most of his congregation, I'm sure, suffered from the bubonic plague. And a fourth of the population of Zurich died from this. 7,500 people died in Zurich alone from this, this plague. And we look at 7,500 and we look at the, the COVID numbers, but a fourth of the population, it, you know, that's an entirely different scenario. There, there literally was no medical way to, to deal with this. They, they had no way of knowing how to treat it. They, they would suffer. It was a very, very painful way to die. But he trusted in the providence of God. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God was good. And he was entrusting himself to the hand of God. And this is Ulrich Zwingli's music, if I can call it that, because he didn't write hymns. He, 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 he would have them read antiphonal sections of scripture to each other. He was very concerned that people's minds be fully engaged and that they be sticking straight to scripture as they dealt uh, together in worship. Well, his contemporary, John Calvin, a name that's, I'm sure, somewhat more familiar to you, he was born in northern France in 1509. Now, last week, we looked at Luther posting the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And when that happened, um, Calvin was eight years old, and, and he was 26 years younger than Martin Luther. Uh, Luther, of course, was in Germany. And at this point, Calvin was in France. Uh, he was, uh, like Zwingli, very well educated. Both of them, Zwingli and, and Calvin, were very well educated in the finest schools uh, in theology, law, classical languages. Uh, and he was, in, he was raised Catholic. But in the 1530s, um, he was in his mid-20s, 24, 25 years of age, suddenly converted uh, as he came under the, the preaching of the gospel, he was exposed to uh, the, the Reformation solace, the, the, te- the, the prior, the, the understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. Uh, and he, he, was, he was coming under this Reformation teaching, and he was saved as a result of that. Uh, and it began to affect what he said and what he did, and he was exiled from France, uh, never to return. Uh, he continued to care for, he continued to write letters to his friends in France to minister to them. But according to Calvin, and, and, and think about this, uh, psalm singing and congregational music had three purposes. One, to glorify God. Number two, to edify the members of the church. Number three, to meditate upon and to foster or to develop Christian virtues. Now, Think about, do we really think about the philosophy of music? Do we think about the why do we sing what we sing and how we sing it and how should we sing it? Um, what's the purpose of music in our worship? For Calvin, it was, it was critical that 
the philosophy of music be embedded 100% in scripture. If he couldn't support it from scripture, he didn't want to go there. And, and so for him, he was rooted entirely in the authority of God's word. And that's where Luther was. He was looking at the authority of God's word. It's been a question of authority. Where do we get our direction in how to worship? And the answer for, for both of them is in the word of God. That, that regulates our worship and, and that which God ordains we should do. So the, the goal, and I'm on page seven now, the, the primary goal, think about this, of co- corporate singing is not our response to the faith or the sharing of feelings, but the praising of God for mercy and grace. He was not concerned about, you know, do we get a tingle in our spine when we're singing the song? Do, do we get this warm feeling? As we, that was not it at all. That was not it at all. It, 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 the focus entirely on honoring God and being faithful to the word. The focus of corporate song is God and not man. And that's a good, that's, that's a very important way to approach the use of music in, in worship. Second, uh, edification of believers. Uh, Calvin stresses the importance of the conscious exercise of the Psalms in the relationship with God. Psalm singing helps to take one's mind off of earthly things and to contemplate spiritual matters. By involving the minds and the mouths of believers, congregational singing draws attention to the scripture. So he was working out his his philosophy of, of music ministry. And third, meditation on the effects of God's grace is a third reason for singing the psalms, a a tool to encourage and strengthen believers, to convict them of their sins, to point them to Christ's atonement, uh, the necessity of obedience. And and those were the three main points of his approach to music, page 8 of your notes. Um, Sort of in the second paragraph, Augustine and Calvin said we should be very careful that our ears be not more attentive to the melody than our minds to the spiritual meaning of the words. Now, let me give you an analogy. When when you go to the St. Louis Art Museum and you're looking at a um, Rembrandt or a Monet or a Bierstadt or whatever the case, your eye is drawn to the painting. The, the, the frame around it draw is not the focus of your point, of your attention, right? I mean, it's nice, it's beautiful, but the frame, hopefully we don't go in and we're looking at, at a Monet and, and we're saying, that frame is just absolutely spectacular. I, I'm captured by that frame. No, you're looking at the art. The frame is the music. The frame is the instrumentation. The lyrics are the painting. The frame draws our attention to the art. It doesn't supplant or dominate the sensory impression of what you're there for. It it creates a context. But if the frame were so ornate that it became the focus of what you you walk in and there's this gorgeous frame and in the middle is this rather nondescript piece of art, you say, that's pretty ridiculous. I'm here to look at art, not, not frames. That's Calvin's mentality about music. It is the, 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 the accompaniment to the extent that there was, and he was not fond of accompaniment, but the accompaniment is, is there simply to help us to stay together and to give us a, a melody line so that we could sing in, in unison together so that our minds would be fully focused on the music, on, on the lyrics. When I say the music, I'm referring to the, the lyrics. The lyrics were drawn from Scripture. 
because they're, they're, they're from the Psalms. And, and the reason he said that is Paul says we are to, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And, and so he, he says, okay, so like Augustine, he said we should be very careful that our ears not more attentive to the melody than our minds to the spiritual meaning of the words. Now, having said that, he was not for mediocrity in the melody line. He was not for something um, that was unattractive in the musical setting. And that's why he engaged Louis Bourgeois uh, to write this. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I talk about the old 100th, when Queen Elizabeth was coronated in 1953, they, 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 did, they did the old 100th as they came down the aisle in Westminster Abbey. Calvin would not have been pleased. It was a choir. It was an organ. It was very emotional. But, but, but very few musicians have their work that perseveres for 500 years, 600 years. Louis Bourgeois is... is clearly one of the most talented musicians in the history of the church. And that's who Calvin engaged to write the, 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 the script for, or the musical script for his psalms. So he was not interested in mediocrity. He was looking at, at excellence in, in all that he did. But in the third paragraph, for Calvin was not much concerned with the harmony of the sound as with the harmony of the heart with God. And so singing in unison heightens the effect of the text on the mind and the heart, and it, it expresses a conviction that all the worshipers belong to the priesthood of believers. Well, let's go to page 9. The, the, the hymn that is attributed by many to Calvin, and, and you say, I thought Calvin only had to sing psalms. Well, it, he was responsible for the Genevan Psalter, the Strasbourg Psalter, but there are many that believe that he was responsible for, at least indirectly, a, a hymn um, that we're going to be looking at called I Greet Thee Who My Sure Redeemer Art. It's an absolutely magnificent hymn. Whether it's John Calvin it, or not, it came immediately in that time frame with John Calvin. It's found in the Strasbourg Psalter in the 1500s. It, 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 so whether John Calvin wrote it or he didn't write it, um, it, it was from that time period. It's from the it's from the early 1500s. But as we look at this this hymn, um, let's let's flip over to page 11. I, I just want to walk you through the lyrics to this, and I want you to take note of some things. Um, when we looked at Luther and his hymn, the focal point that I, I drew your attention to last week was the Reformation sola of sola scriptura, scripture alone, the, the authority of scripture alone as our rule of faith and practice, as the authority of what we believe. He was responding to the Roman doctrine of tradition, right, the magisterium, and, and they had gone very far away from Sola Scriptura. Scripture was secondary, I would argue, to the, the papal authority. Uh, the Pope became, became the, the one who determined what the meaning of Scripture was. Uh, and so the authority of Scripture was severely undermined. And for Luther, regaining and affirming and championing the authority of Scripture alone was extremely important. It drove his life. This hymn looks at another one of the Reformation solas, solus Christus, Christ alone. And as we work through these five stanzas, I want you to notice that 
Calvin or one of his close contemporaries that was working right along with him. Could have been Theodore Beza, could have been somebody else. But it's looking at Christ alone as the one who satisfies us, who is our Redeemer. And in the first stanza, you'll notice as you're looking at the lyrics that it's written in the first person. I read thee who my sure Redeemer art. In stanzas two, three, four, and five, he shifts to the, the plural. Uh, he, he refers to our, to we, and to us. And this was a hymn of corporate affirmation. So as they, as they would sing this, there was the personal testimony in the first stanza of leaning entirely on Christ, trusting only in Christ. And then as this, as this hymn develops, it becomes particularly in the fifth stanza a corporate confession of faith. It becomes a, an affirmation of the entire congregation as they are speaking these words to each other. So look at this, and I greet thee, and notice the onlys. Uh, you'll see that in the first stanza, uh, you'll see that in the third stanza, and you'll see it in the fifth stanza. Uh, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and Savior of my heart. Third stanza, thou art the life by which alone we live. In the fifth stanza, our hope is in no other save in thee. Three times in these five stanzas, he affirms the, the sola uh, of solus Christus, Christ alone. My only trust and Savior of my heart. What, what had they been trusting in for centuries to the extent that they had any confidence at all under the Roman church that they had a right standing with God. Works, 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 works. They had no confidence. The one who would believe in justification by faith alone was declared to be anathema, accursed. And, and so for Calvin and his contemporaries, it was Christ alone. Not works, no contribution. Christ did it all. Who pain did undergo for my poor sake, then in each case, notice the, the, the supplications that are made, the prayers that are made. I pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. He makes, this hymn makes a number of prayers, and they're all based upon the character of God. You are my only trust. That being the case, I'm asking you, I'm praying that you will take from my heart all cares. Second stanza, the supremacy of God. Thou art the king of mercy and of grace reigning omnipotent in every place. Here, so, so what do we do with that? Again, in every case, you'll notice there was a response to this affirmation of doctrinal truth. So come, O King, in our whole being's way. He's affirming the Lordship of Christ. He's saying, take control of every aspect of my life. Our whole being's way. Shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Third stanza, thou art the life by which alone we live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And all our substance and our strength receive. What he's saying is our life comes from you. Our Everything that we have, our substance comes from you. Our strength comes from you. So what, does, so what do we do about that? So the prayer is comfort us in death's approaching hour. Like Zwingli, he understood that death was certain. He understood that that, was, that day would come. So comfort us in death's approaching hour, strong-hearted then to face it by thy power. Fourth stanza. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness, no harshness hast thou, no bitterness. So what do we do about that? Here's the petition. Make us to taste the sweet grace found in thee. 
and ever stay in thy sweet unity. And then this fifth stanza is, is an absolutely majestic corporate confession of faith in the, in, in the sufficiency of Christ alone. Our hope, the, the whole congregation is singing this, our hope, not mine alone. He started that in verse 1. I greet thee, my sure redeemer, art my only trust. And then it ends up the whole congregation is saying, our hope is built, is in no other save in thee. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. What promise is that? The promise of the gospel. That Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Our faith is built upon thy promise free. It's, it's not rooted in any works. It's not rooted in emotion. It's not rooted in the church. It's rooted in Christ alone. So what do we do about that? Again, a prayer. Grant us such stronger hope and sure. He said, our hope is in thee, but give us stronger hope. Cause our hope to be strong and, and so that we can boldly conquer and endure. Where do we gain our strength? Not in our own selves, in Christ alone. My, my, my strength is perfected in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And so this entire hymn is rooted in the sufficiency of Christ alone. It is all about Christ alone. Well, there's some quotes that you can see uh, there uh, from John Calvin that gives you a sense of his heart. I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? Everything in Christ. Whoever is not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. And you can read the rest of it. On the last page, page 12, comes something from the Dutch Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'll let you read that. It's, it's one of the most majestic statements of what our comfort, our hope is in Christ. But let's, let's sing this hymn, this remarkable hymn, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. alone we live and 
all our substance and our strength receive. Sustain us by thy faith and by thy power, and give us strength in every trying part. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. Make us to taste the sweet grace found in thee, and ever stay in thy sweet unity. Our hope is in no other save in Thee. Our faith is built upon Thy promise free. Oh, grant to us such stronger hope and sure that we can boldly conquer and By way of conclusion, let me just read for you this first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is thy only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Father, we come and we would affirm that our only hope is in you. Our only trust is in you. Our faith rests upon your promise the sure and certain promise of the sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our sinless substitute, the one who took our sin upon himself, that we might be clothed with his righteousness, that he might take our sin and die in our place, that your justice might be fully satisfied. We rest in him and in him alone. Amen.